Every Arizona homeowner's best friend for 30 years. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the House. Back in the saddle again. Good morning, y'all. Saturday morning, wake up tradition. This is every Arizona homeowner's happy place. Come on into my house. It's Rosie on the house. Here it comes. Yeah. Good morning, Arizona. Whatever your cares or concerns are, bring them to old Rosie. My son Romy's here. And then, what's the word for throwing it out the window? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get to that. Along with my dear sweet wife, Miss Jennifer. Good morning, Miss Jennifer. Good morning. We've just finished celebrating our 40th anniversary with a trip through Europe. That was, um, I, I generally speaking, if I can't get there in my F-250, I'm not interested in going. But we hit Lisbon, Prague, Warsaw, Tbilisi, Georgia. We got to within four kilometers of the Russian border. That was so spooky weird. Glad we're not there today. That was really weird. I actually got to peer down and look into a Russian military base, bordering, uh, uh, protecting some, uh, uh, what did they call that territory? Georgia thinks it's Georgia's and Russia thinks it's Russia's. A contested. No man land. It's a no man land, baby. But we got to look down in right in the Russian camp there. There's schoolhouses the, and school buses and there the, isn't a there isn't a kid on the whole in the whole place. The <laughs> picture of those mountains, there isn't a tree or a bush or an yeah. animal living. It's 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 the, it's no the, living land either. The <laughs> Caucasus Mountains. Man, they're gorgeous. And we spent some time in Magalas, Malaga. I always put the L and the G in the wrong place. Malaga. Malaga, Spain. So we had actually a great time. Romy, thanks for covering for us while we traipsed all over the country. So we're back. and uh, Country. The world. There you the go. The globe. We were globe trotting. But boy, it sure felt good when I got home to put my behind in that F-250 again. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so comfortable. So we're back. We're here for you. Saturday morning tradition, and of course, we have got guests lined up for the 7 o'clock hour. It's going to be a big lineup. Today, we have convinced Dr. David Dean from Grand Canyon University to come in and talk history. Professor, professor of history. Good morning. How are you Glad today? You're back. Good. Good. Got your taxes done? Um you know, uh, we... <laughs> that means no. We, uh, we, we... Uh, I'll have to check I, with my uh, uh, account team and get back uh, to you on that one. My uh, man's name is Bob. And let's just say Bob and I have spent a lot of time on the phone yesterday. <laughs> well, I think we're going to be talking about taxes a little bit today. Yeah, tax day. It's that time of year. Mm-hmm. And uh, in history, I study uh, successful entrepreneurs 
and I study the 18th and 19th century entrepreneurs. And, you know, I could build a pretty good estate if I didn't have to give 40% of it away. That's right. <laughs> Can you imagine living in a time in this great country where there is no zero personal income tax? Before the income tax, how did government fund itself? Well, mostly through tariffs on things coming in. I like that better. Uh, sometimes on property taxes, uh, uh, sometimes on uh, sales taxes or licensing taxes. Like, uh, of course, when you tax alcohol, like the uh, they did in the colonial era that started the Whiskey Rebellion. So people don't like their booze uh, necessarily taxed. <laughs> that gets people kind of riled up. But the government had, um, for lack of a better, kind of a haphazard way of taxing things. And that was not just planning, but that was held up, upheld by the courts and everything so, that you could not get revenue in these, you know, just a blanket, one size fits all method. So you're saying we are now living in uh, a system of 200 years of learning how to tax, and they've gotten very good at it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did not only of raising taxes, but spending the tax money. And did, then some. <laughs> did we invent? Personal income tax? No, personal income taxes uh, uh, have a, a longer tradition in other places. Um, but uh, the Western countries, the Western industrializing countries, uh, start to use personal income tax as a way of apportioning taxes more evenly across the board. Um, what that means is that if you don't buy something, then you wouldn't be paying a tax. If you don't import something, you weren't paying a tax. If you didn't own property or transact property, you weren't paying a tax. By having an income tax, that's a way of kind of spreading taxes out so you don't have to raise as high of taxes, theoretically, because you're putting a little bit on a lot of people. When did we start it here? Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, was the great emancipator and the great taxer. Uh, in order to pay for the uh, Civil War, he uh, launched uh, an initiative to uh, have a personal income tax to raise funds for the Civil War. But after the war, it was repealed. Um, and we're talking about 3% income tax on incomes of over $800 uh, during the Civil War. And now $800, that would be, you know, upper class middle-class kind of people paid 3% of their income. Everybody else wouldn't pay any. Um, and then in 1872... That's $24. That was, yeah. And then in 1872, <laughs> it was rescinded um, uh, because it was you know not necessarily anymore. But as time goes on, big business grows. And again, as big business grows and you're starting to tax property and, and the holdings of businesses and transactions and whatnot, you're not making that apportionment even... And when we get into that industrial age and government starts to do things, the progressives come along and say, well, we've got to pay for some stuff. We've got to pay for some programs. We've got to pay for kind of fixing what the industrial world is doing. So we need to raise some revenue. So they, they actually put it as an amendment, constitutional amendment uh, in Congress to create a flat you know, income tax across the board, thinking that this will stop this other piece of legislation. They buried it in there. And lo and behold, States liked it, and they started to pass it. Next thing you know, we ended up with an income tax because the the Congress underestimated that the people wanted they wanted government doing these things, doing hmm. things that they needed. Which we got to talk about why the progressives wanted to do some stuff. 
And so that was a progressive movement. Mm-hmm. And, and a progressive, you, you, we couldn't label a founding father progressive. Absolutely we? not. We couldn't. Thomas Jefferson, uh, George Washington, even uh, somebody like uh, Alexander Hamilton would not have been considered a, a progressive. progressive. What, what do you consider a progressive? What, what's the unique criteria? So the unique criteria of a progressive is where they start to kind of think about the role of government as helping everybody. Usually the, uh, the founding fathers thought of government in one of two ways, either getting out of the way yes. and letting people do whatever they wanted or intervening to make sure that there was a fairness. But that was kind of it. Whereas the progressives come along and see that if you leave kind of a laissez-faire industrial kind of society, business doesn't really act responsibility. Urbanization and the rapid growth of cities and things left a lot of problems in urban areas. And nobody's fixing those. You have government corruption, the, the Tammany Halls, the Boss Tweeds and that kind of stuff. So you have inefficient government. This is all early 1900s. All late, 19, late 1800s, 18. early 1900s. And okay. so all that kind of comes to a boiling point where some very smart people, upper class people, got together and said, you know what? We need to figure out a way to solve some of these problems because if we don't, then we're going to have chaos, we're going to have mobs, we're going to have social problems. And so let's take on things like political corruption. Let's take on the abuses of, of big business. Let's so take is on, Theodore Roosevelt the first progressive? He's the, he's the first progressive president. Progressives actually get their kind of start in the populist movement. So you could go back to, say, William Jennings Bryan uh, and kind of his whole idea of working with the farmers and the populist kind of thing. But he's the first progressive president, and he references people, references people like, uh, say, Robert Follett and uh, uh, Jane Hull, uh, uh, Jane I'm sorry, of the Hull House in, uh, in Chicago, people who were, who were trying to use their resources and their abilities to make things better for the poor, the working class, cities, uh, make things fair for businesses, f- between business and labor, and all those kind of things. So they're going to they're going to set up this personal income tax to fund a more robust government that can intervene in these areas that society isn't taking care of on its own. Sure, a, a, an activist type government. But the exchange is, is well, let's be smart about it. Let's be efficient. Let's use science to make sure that we're making good decisions. And let's not be pie in the sky. Let's we're not talking about a utopia here. But let's have very practical decisions to very practical problems. Hmm. What happened to that? <laughs> then Congress got elected. Um, well, this, what's funny is uh, one of the progressive mo- uh, amendments, the 17th Amendment, uh, called for the direct election of senators. Now, pre- previously to that, most senators were elected by the state legislature, would send senators of their choosing to, to Washington. And that wasn't get, didn't get the people involved very much. So progressives came along and said, no, people need to have a direct say so in that. So they start to create primary elections, and then they would have the people directly elect those senators. And that gets passed into Congress, changing how senators are elected with the 17th Amendment. And when is that? Uh, That's about the same time frame, 1910 to 1915 or so. And of course, the women's right to vote comes along as a progressive movement that expands democracy, makes things more fair, more participation in democracy. That's the 19th Amendment. What's a muckraker? 
Muckraker, oh, those were troublemakers. Those were people like in the media that would write about problems and issues like uh, uh, Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, which exposes the problems of the meatpacking industry. You have McClure's magazine would expose uh, problems, uh, corruption in government and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, a guy by the name of Jacob Rees who wrote a book about New York City and the problems of urban blight and, and, and crowded housing and sanitary conditions and health conditions uh, called How the Other Half Lives. Um, those are all kind of opportunities that they're saying, hey, there's issues in our society. We need to fix these things. Here with Dr. David Dean from Grand Canyon University, a uh, professor of history. What, what's your full title? Uh, assistant professor of history. That's it. I knew I knew there was a, another adjective an, in there. An extra thing. Another <laughs> title. Another title. Hey, we'll be back with Dr. Dean right after this, talking the progressive era. The Fathers of the Personal Income Tax. Have you filed yours yet? He's knocking at your door today. Dave Ramsey had a funny quote the other day. He said, you know, you want to see real revolution uh, take place in America? Have the tax man standing at the door on Friday taking your money as you walk out the door. So then you'll see something happen. (laughs) Well, in our recent travels across Europe, we spent some time in Prague. That's a town I could go back to. That is an incredible city. They have in their history three upheavals called defenestrations. And it's like much de-administrations? defenestrations. Defenestrations. And it's basically mobs storming city hall and defenestration means throw them out the window. A high window. A high window. It's much more When was the last uh, defenestration? Well, like the 1600s. Oh. <laughs> but but Don't get any ideas. No, but, it, but it but it's much that seems to be much more civil than a than a civil war. Sure. Much less collateral yeah, just a damage. Couple. Yeah. Just round up the leaders and throw them out the window. We're here what with assistant Drain the swamp. Professor of History from Grand Canyon University, Dr. David Dean, a regular recurring guest here at Rosie on the House. We always get great feedback anytime you're here. We certainly appreciate you willingness to come in and share your wisdom with us. I'm glad to be here. And your more than able aid, Miss Victoria. Alanis, Victoria, how are you? Thanks for joining us. How are you? Good, good. Have you started paying personal income tax yet? I did. I did this year, and it was quite a bit. It's a real badge of honor, isn't it? Yeah. I learned back in Texas, we don't have a state tax, but I didn't know you had one here in Arizona. So I was super confused when they were like, yeah, the state's going to take your money. I was like, what? Yeah. No. You get to pay twice. Home for you is El Paso, right? Yes, sir. No state income tax in the great state of Texas. Yeah. (laughs) I I filled out the the super easy form. How much did you make? Send it in. Send it in. Just two lines, you know. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) <laughs> forget, That's what it feels like, isn't forget, it? Forget all that deduction stuff. You yeah. know? Just hand it over. All right, so we're talking about the progressives who, who really ushered in the personal income tax in the, in the United States of America. Right. Early 1900s. Early 1900s. Okay. And, and again, the, they're responding to the problems of industrialization. Big business is making big money. Labor is struggling. 
cities are are competing because uh, uh, with with sanitation and health issues and overcrowding. We're just going after the environment and and they're they're just trashing the environment with extracting natural resources. There's no conservation going on. Uh, democracy isn't for everybody. We have inefficient government. We have corruption everywhere. Uh, so they go after these topics, and uh, they are the wealthy. They are the elites and the ones that are going after this. Tom, uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, gets kind of the moniker of being kind of the leader of the progressives. He's the first progressive president. And one of the things that he wrote was, we must show not merely in great crisis, but in everyday affairs of life, the qualities of practical intelligence, of courage, of hardihood and endurance, and above all, the power of devotion to a lofty ideal. And in that, that lofty ideal that he means is using government, using science, efficiency, effective government education, and morality to make the country better, not just for the elites, not just for the few, but for everybody. Is this self-preservation of the elites? In some ways, you could kind of consider that, um, that w given what's the uh, the upheavals that are going on in Europe at about the same time, uh, they're not They've gone beyond throwing people out the windows to now, you know, like the czar. They're overthrowing uh, uh, the old elite, wealthy, uh, because they're redistributing power and wealth and those kind of things. And the writings of socialism and communism are rising. And I think the elites here in America kind of get out in front of this and say, we're next if we don't do something about this. And so um, – they, they, they think about, let's, how can we have a greater democracy? How can we have more efficiency? How can we bring people into our democracies and get more participation so people don't feel like they don't have a voice, they don't have a say-so? How can we use effective regulation not only to help businesses be more responsible, but also to make sure that when people do something like build a building or something like that, it doesn't kill people. It doesn't like uh, uh, have dangerous conditions or, or child safety laws or those kind of things. They want social justice. Uh, they look Look at conservation, preserving our natural forests, our natural waters, and things as all a big package of making the country better, making it better for everybody. Where where was the textile fire that I'm, I'm vaguely remembering in my history? Uh, the uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire was in New York City, um, and uh, it was a a fire that caused it about the fourth fifth floor of this uh, uh, factory where you know sewing machines make dust. And so um, it was there, and 146 women died. They had the doors locked. Mm-hmm. Against, there was no codes, no building codes. Mm. Back with Dr. David Dean here at Rosie on the House in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. We're going to continue covering the progressives of the United States of America. Because from those total wages earned down to that net amount that's due, I feel a painful sense of loss between the two. <laughs> mm, there goes that bracelet for her arm. Mm, That's for my bracelet. All right, we're back. Rosie on the house. Welcome back. Having a little fun this morning talking about income tax and the progressive era and our recent voyage and trip through Europe. Prague. Museum of Transportation. If you haven't been there, you got to go. So I've got the Assistant Professor of History from Grand Canyon University in here in the studio live with me, Dr. David Dean, and I'm going to stump him. Dr. Dean, 
as a car fan, what do you drive? I, well, What's your baby? What's your baby? 1965 Corvair. Uh-huh. You show that thing all over, don't you, in your Corvair club? That's right. Yeah. Okay. I'm reading this directly off the English interpreted plaque <laughs> in front of, okay? What is regarded as the earliest road motor vehicle in the world? Um, well, I would go back to French inventor Nicolas Cugnot's uh, 1770 uh, uh, self-propelled carriage. I thought I was going to stump him. <laughs> well, he's got Google there to help him out. Did you cheat? Uh, it's the it's a, it's a car club you museum. Uh, Se- seven, 1769. Okay, so how's it self-propelled? It's steam, but there's no roads. There's no road. It was a hundred years. The first ATV. It, it was a hundred years later before automobiles took off. They invented the automobile a hundred years before we started using them. That would have been a yeah. rough ride. It went it went four point eight miles. <laughs> I can't imagine what those four point eight miles would be like. <laughs> Downhill, exhausting. Um, but probably pretty bumpy. Well, I don't think they have shocks then. You know, the the Prague Museum of Transportation, it it had uh, locomotive. Like, it, had it had like four floors and it, it four you floors. Walk through the, the history of each motorcycles, cars, airplanes. It it was a cool museum. Or anyway, in that same era, not long before, we had a, a great interview a couple months ago with a local hot air balloon pilot, and he talked about the invention of hot air balloons. And uh, have you heard that story? That goes back to the Renaissance era. So in that, they they didn't know if people would live up there past the trees. No one had ever been. <laughs> so they stuck a, a chicken, a goat, and I think a duck. We're like the three, or a goat, a goat, a duck, and a chicken. <laughs> on this propelled cart, did they stick like a dog and a... No, I th- I, 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 that, only when they send them to space. Uh, but no, I think they just use regular people and the first kind of things. It's a carriage. They just motorized it, you know. Well, there were some beautiful, beautiful vehicles in there. All right, we're here with Dr. David. We're really not talking about cars. We're talking about the progressives of America that instigated the personal income tax actually for very noble reasons when you read through them sure to uh to just help a lot of people out make the level of the playing field you know something that's very surprising is that you know arizona becomes a state in 1912 we are and many of your listeners might be surprised to hear this but arizona is a progressive state because our constitution at that time included a lot of these these principles of progressivism like, for example, one of the things was greater democracy. They wanted to increase the ability of people to participate. And so our Constitution has the initiative, the referendum, and the recall in it. And those are three things that allow uh, – the initiative allows citizens to bring legislation directly to the ballot. The referendum allows uh, allows our state legislature really to get off the hook of something. We don't want to decide this, so we will Push put, it, back. We'll put <laughs> it out to the people and let them decide it, yeah. right? Uh, and then the recall, if there's an elected official or judges that aren't doing their jobs, we could, well, can recall them. And actually, when our Are cons- these three things unique to the Arizona Constitution? They are not unique now, but at the time, they were progressive. And since we and just a few others are in that kind of position, we uniquely have them in our Constitution at the time, except for the recall of judges. What happened was, when our Constitution went to Washington, D.C. to be approved— 
President Taft at the time vetoed it. I don't like this recall of judges. He thought that that would uh, allow labor unions to turn out judges that were anti-labor. So he vetoed it. We brought the thing back. We took that out, sent it back. He signed it. And the very next November, remember, we become a state in February. The very next November, the First Amendment, the first initiative on the, on the ballot was to put recall back right on it. <laughs> so that's our First Amendment to our, to our state constitution. Arizona is a progressive state. It is a progressive state. If you think about honest and efficient government, we have, like in the city of Phoenix and Tucson, others, we have what we call a, a, a mayor-council system. Not whoever is elected and, and, and who's basically going to buy drinks, all that corrupt way that they did politics in the 19th century. They now have a professional system, a mayor and city council chosen by districts that you vote for. They can only hire and fire one person the city manager. Before, mayors who got elected would give out the police chief to their brother-in-law and the director of sanitation to somebody who made a big campaign donation and whatnot. Very corrupt. Now the city manager is a professional, and he hires somebody that knows what they're doing about sanitation or a professional law enforcement person for the director of the police department. And so the city manager hires and fires and runs the whole city and the city, and he reports to the mayor and city council. If they don't like what he's doing, they hire and fire just him. That's a very important aspect of, of progressivism to help out more democracy. We also have commissions where citizens create, have boards that advise those individuals, politicians and whatnot, city commissions, state commissions and things, of citizens to help get more voice into government. Efficiency, that honesty. And, and, and they bring building codes to the forefront? They bring building codes. Uh, uh, this is the effective regulation, not only going after businesses and their problems, but think about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory that, uh, fire. That was, a, that was a, a building code tragedy. There weren't enough rules in place, and there wasn't a professional necessarily reviewing those plans. Now you've got a professional building inspector, and he's got a set of codes that when you build a building, not only do you have to worry about it not falling over on everybody else, but does it have safety? Does it, do we have exit signs? Do we have egress and access and windows and all those different things that allow for our buildings to be safe? Thanks to the progressives, we have that. Interesting. How about how about any involvement in the uh, Food and Drug Administration? Again, as a result of uh, the muckrakers and uh, Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, uh, you had the pure, pure food. <laughs> they yeah, did. Yeah. We did. The, the Pure <laughs> Food and Drug uh, Act, which regulated the food industries to say, if this is the ingredient that you say that's in it, that's what's in it. Uh, uh, that also uh, tests and, and certifies drugs. So these snake oil salesmen, let's mix some whiskey and turpentine and says it'll cure everything. Well, instead of giving you blindness, it now has to actually cure something, right? Uh, and then the Meat Inspection Act helps us uh, distinguish the qualities and cuts of meat, like your choice and your prime and, and, and the sanitation of all those different kinds of way animals are handled and packaged so that they make it to your market safely. Do you know, I think that's the main reason we should travel. Because, <laughs> because you don't realize what a gift it is to live here and how you know that what you eat is what it says it is. And we were just, we, right after we left Tbilisi, our daughter Rachel sent us an article that nine of the restaurants had been um, busted for serving donkey, it, saying that it <laughs> as beef. And so she checked. We hadn't been to any of them. But, you know, I thought about that all Those along the way. Those are just the nine that got caught. That's I, right. right. I know. Yeah, yeah. Don't, That's don't right. tell me that. But just all along the way, just, you know, Tbilisi's at, uh, Georgia itself is a developing country, you know, from third world just a little bit up. And you just really don't, there's, rules aren't in place, roads aren't in place, rule, you know, it's just, it's we, a wild place. We were driving 
to and and you've been there. I mean, to me, this was like mind blowing. But you're driving down the road in the country of Georgia, Romy, and there's like you you almost get castle fatigue. There's like a castle on the top of every single hill in this mm-hmm. country, and they're not protected. There's no you don't pay to get in to see it. It's in ruins. There's dogs and horses just walking all over. You just hike up to it and ha- sit on the wall that's thousands <laughs> thousands of years old and eat your banana. I mean, it's unbelievable. So driving to this castle, we're going along this river, which according to my daughter is like the most polluted river in Europe. And there's guys netting fish and hanging up on a string from a tree, and you can get a fresh-caught fish and she just for post- dinner. She just posted this morning, now there's a restaurant serving crawfish. So I'm, I, I want to ask her, do those crawfish come from that riverbank? You know? So you, you really Probably do. not. Well, you re- you not really, rivers, but you, you know, really lakes do are get to take too. a lot of what we take for granted. It's an eye-opening experience. Well, take for example just what you mentioned about traveling and seeing these great ruins and whatnot. Well, imagine Casa Grande on the way between Phoenix and Tucson. That that adobe mm-hmm. dwelling from left over from our ancient native first uh, residents here. Well, that wasn't protected. People did the same thing. Yeah. They wandered up and had picnics there. Well, thanks to the progressives, they passed the uh, uh, um, a series of laws to protect federal wildlife areas, national parks, uh, national monuments and things, to protect places like the Grand Canyon and our waterways to keep them fresh and clean. And that was mostly Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. Teddy Roosevelt yeah. was a big part of it, but uh, uh, Taft carried forward with that. And same with Woodrow Wilson, later president, continued those things going forward. And so those conservation was also part of this package because otherwise the stuff does just get ruined or whatnot. Okay, so if I forgive the progressives for instigating a 3% personal income tax, who can I throw out the window for getting it up to 40%? (laughs) Um, well, that would be all those people that like to prove those big deficit budgets and stuff, right? I don't really want to call out any names, but, uh, I think they're all guilty. Is that would that be a safe assumption? Yeah, uh, both houses. Yes, that big Capitol building in D.C. I think there's a lot of blame to just spread it out like peanut butter over everybody. Because you can't help but get inspired reading the notes you've put together on the progressive error and the noble causes that have been instigated by the funding implement of a personal income tax and what makes so many things of this country great. Well, take, for example, life in central Arizona. But then you have to sign the check. That's right. You have to sign the check. Monday night to put in the mail, (laughs) and there's a rub there. Yeah. Well, you got to build dams like Roosevelt Dam, built in 1911, which, which, you know, there was a a flood, 100-year flood. You know what? We're going to come back. We're going to come back to to the flood and the dam with Dr. Dean here at Rosie on the House right after this. Only at Rosie on the House can we make good news of personal income tax. That's right. Right. That's right. Without income taxes, without uh, uh, that 16th Amendment, we wouldn't have gotten the Roosevelt Dam funded, which uh, created a stable water. We had a big flood. Then we had a big drought. And people went to Washington and said, we need help. And the progressives came through. President Roosevelt authorized and got Congress to bring the money together to build Roosevelt Dam. 
and that stabilizes our water and makes life in the central Arizona Valley, Phoenix area possible. The pro- in the progressive state of Arizona. That's right. I um, think we enlightened a lot of people today. I, I'll bet you if you ask 100 Arizonans if we were a progressive state, 99 would have said no. You're probably right. In fact, there's a lot of people who would have said, no way! Because <laughs> you're applying it from a hundred and, you know, plus years ago. Uh, progressive then is not what you, you know, a progressive now. We were born progressive. Right. And President Roosevelt, you know, he, he summed it up, I think, a good, a good quote for even today. He says, this country will not be a permanently good place for any of us to live in unless we make it a reasonably good place for all of us to live. Teddy Roosevelt, 1912. Mm-hmm. Assistant Professor of History, Dr. David Dean. I, I, I thought I had you stumped today. I didn't. You, you continue to amaze us with your reservoir of knowledge. Victoria, thanks for joining him and bringing him here on time today. Oh, no problem. I was the one that overslept this morning, actually. Ah, <laughs> all right. So when, when do you get to go home to mom and dad in El Paso? I go home the 26th of April. All right. So. And then you're back for how many more years at GCU? Uh, one more year. One more year. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Can you remember being in your last year of college? One year to go? Uh, yeah, it was like 40 years ago. <laughs> Something else happened that year, too. <laughs> got married during spring break. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. All right, we've got the Arizona Staycation. You can only win it one place at rosieonthehouse.com. Our April winner got to go to the Grand Canyon and stay at the Yavapai Lodge. That's hard to beat. Oh, it that is. Mid-century is modern buildings. They have a they just really cool rooms, um, pet-friendly package. You can bring your dog. They even lend you a kennel. So just really easy place to stay. They have a tavern, a coffee shop, um, and buildings from Route 66. But just really cool place to stay. And if you want to go in the summer, they have air conditioning, which not everybody does up there. So that's a great place to think about for a little summer, summer staycation of your own. But in two days, we're going to draw for the Snowflake Staycation, which is um, the May the May. Uh, Staycation. Sorry, I lost my page here. Snowflake, um, Arizona is a cool little corner of the state. It is. You're close to um, state parks. You'll get um, passes to the state park. You'll get uh, to stay at the Heritage Inn Bed and Breakfast um, and, a, and a basket to go in your Sanderson Ford. Arizona Highways gift box. So you go to rosieonthehouse.com, register Every month, we pick a winner for an Arizona staycation. When we pick that winner, we empty the bucket. There's no more names in the bucket. So you have to reapply next month. Put your name back in the bucket. Re-register and get in there for a chance to win one of 12 monthly Arizona staycations sponsored by Sanderson Ford. You get to go to Sanderson Ford, 64 acres of Ford vehicles. Pick the vehicle you'd like in their demo lot to take. Sanderson Ford gives you the keys. It's full of gas. We have gift baskets from Sibley's West, Arizona Highways. Sphinx Date Ranch. Sphinx Date Ranch. Yummy, yummy baskets. Coyote Ode cookies. Uh, Jennifer gives you a gas card. We arrange for your lodging. And you have a whole staycation. Right and if, there. And if you go to our website, you can just click on the little staycation button, and you can sign up, and you can see we're doing a little different this year. You sign up for a place to go. We've already built out the staycations. So you sign up. If you want to go to Heritage in Bed and Breakfast in Snowflake, you need to sign up by April 16th. 
Okay, there you go. That's only available. Only place in the world that's available is right here at Rosie on the House. And again, we'd like to thank Sanderson Ford for being a big part and participant of that. I just saw this little feature we just put on the website. I don't know who, who did this, probably Romy. It's two days, 17 hours, 20 minutes, and 15 seconds left you have to register. Jen, the the Jen found that. <laughs> <Isn't> some, that <laughs> some free service that yeah. does a, an automated countdown. It's yeah. really cool. That is cool. Okay, we are going to switch subjects now. We are going to go from talking about the progressives and the installation and instigation of the personal income tax are to trees that talk to each other through their root systems. How are we going to make that transition? Are we going to defenestrate Dr. Dean out the window here? There's a Palo Verde he could catch, or are we going to let him oshfart out the door this way? Yes. See, every time y'all go to Europe, I get new words. Yes, yes, you do. Yes, you do. I'm sorry, but I don't oshfart. <laughs> That's German for exit. Okay. <laughs> you can exit out the door, do or we're going to defenestrate you out the window. <laughs> now, look, before you leave, you're going to try some of this Cajun boudin we got in here, Absolutely. Right? Biscuits and boudin, homemade fig preserves. We always have a little Cajun Absolutely. feast in here. Brought a little morning. doggy bag and everything so I can take some home to Marion, too. Very good. good. Well, thanks a million for coming in. But seriously, we're going to talk about, I was reading in the Smithsonian Magazine, March 2018, yesterday, about trees that talk to each other through the fungus in their root system. And the German professor that wrote the book on that, um, our guest in the next hour, has read that book. The trees in Africa talk to each other when the giraffes start chewing their leaves. That's why the giraffes have to eat into the wind. Because downwind, the trees are now excreting a poison. It's trees talking to each other. You got to stay tuned for this.